You're listening to episode 53 of the Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. Hey, we're Sub Radio. You're listening to the Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. Here's your host, Suze, founder of the Rockstar Advocate. Hello, you're listening to episode 53, Musicpreneur Spotlight, Eric Oberstein. I'm your host, Suze, a mindset coach helping music professionals get clear on their goals and find the time to get it all done while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Goals are a funny thing. Sometimes we think we know where we want to head, but life has an interesting way of guiding us down paths we may never have thought would be in the realm of possibility. That's why it's so important to always check back in with your goals and reflect on what you've accomplished so far. Is life pointing you in a different direction? Do you need to change your goals or get back on course? This spotlight hits very close to home because my guest Eric Oberstein and I grew up together in the same town. Eric was the quiet one compared to his older brother Matt, also an impressive talent in music as the music director of the Philharmonic of Southern New Jersey. Just when we thought we had Eric pegged for the next star reporter of the New York Times, he decides to go and win a bunch of Grammys and become a highly respected producer in the Latin jazz world. Go figure. We sat down over winter break to discuss his fascinating journey from research writer to big band music producer and what he's learned along the way. I'll let him tell his own story, but I want you to keep something in the front of your mind while you're listening. What have you kept yourself from taking action on simply because it didn't seem possible? Think about that a bit and enjoy the spotlight. All right, so I'm here with Eric Oberstein, and this is a, a high school reunion of sorts. This is uh, really cool. I've been friends with Eric and his brother, Math, who's also in music for quite some time, and we have a very long journey of, I guess, elementary school, really. So it's been nice to have a fellow Floral Parkian, <laughs> Floral, Floral Park Knight, here on this uh, podcast, so thank you for doing this. You've had a really interesting path uh, in the music industry, and it's really different than anybody else that I've had on as a guest. And so I'm really excited to dig in. Um, You are a Grammy and Latin Grammy Award winning producer, among many other hats that you wear. And when I think a lot of, you know, do-it-yourself musicians, when they think about winning Grammys and they, you know, figure I have to be signed to a major label or I have to be a famous touring musician or, you know, there has to be a specific way that I have to achieve these milestones. Um, You've been extremely accomplished in a a plethora of different avenues, um, but mainly as an educator and consultant within your work of higher education and uh, working at acclaimed art centers, you know, throughout the country. So tell us a little bit more about the path that you've been on since graduating high school and how you've kind of created your own path and, and through these institutions, you know, had such success as a, as a music producer, among other things. Sure. Well, thanks so much, Suze, for having me. And it feels like ages ago and yesterday that we were in high school and elementary school. And I know we were talking earlier about just our group of friends that were just super into the arts and, yeah. and music and and somehow here we are, uh, still doing it in some fashion. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I grew up playing music and playing in band and starting elementary school and junior high and high school. And, you know, loved it. I did marching band and 
a stage band and talent show, and my best friends and I, we started a rock band in high school, <laughs> yep. the infamous Staircase D. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I still, I think, I think I might have your t-shirt still. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that was one of those early entrepreneurial mm-hmm. artistic experiments. Yeah. You know, we were, we were just... It's a rite of passage. That's right. We, we were... <laughs> We were just kids having fun, trying to stay out of trouble, and we all loved music, so we started a rock band, and, and um, we sold t-shirts to mm-hmm. help fund the record, yep. and actually went to a recording studio in Whitestone oh to record. God, that's right. Um, and it was our first experience in a professional recording studio, yeah. and that got me interested in in music recording in studios and then the summer before senior year actually interned at a studio in Manhattan in Greenwich Village called Campo Studios which is Mm -hmm. no longer around I don't think but it's interesting they used to be the home studio for sessions at AOL back in the day I don't know if you remember sessions at AOL but they'd they'd bring in huge artists who had just released records and bring them in for an acoustic session and yep. interview. Mm-hmm. So those early experiences in the studio just got me curious about career in music and what that might look like. Uh, I actually thought about studying music business in college, uh, but it was right around the time of Napster. Yes. <laughs> and little did we know that the music business was about to change dramatically. Right. And for, for whatever reason, I had this feeling that, well, maybe... I should just pursue a liberal arts education as opposed to specializing in music business right out of high school. Mm-hmm. So I ended up applying to Duke mm-hmm. and ended up going there, actually thinking that I was going to study journalism. See, I know that's what I wanted to ask yeah. you about because I just always pegged you to be like on the New York Times writing, you know, <laughs> editorials. Uh, and <laughs> so uh, the fun story for everyone listening is that I used to uh, work on the school newspaper the Shield, and Suze's mom <laughs> was our advisor, uh, both for me and my brother, and I loved it, and that was such a huge education for me and learning mm-hmm. experience for me, and for me at the time, writing and music were, were my two things, Right. and I got to Duke, and Duke doesn't have a journalism major, Okay. there's a certificate with, which sits under the public policy major, Okay. and I took the intro class for public policy, which... I learned later was the weed out class for the major, <laughs> and it uh, weeded me out very quickly. I realized that problem sets and memo writing were not my thing, so uh, I was I was surfing the course catalog for the following spring semester, and I, I came a, came upon a seminar on Cuba. Okay. And uh, my mom's Cuban born. I grew up around that side of my family and that culture, mm-hmm. and. Especially the music. Right. So I have these fond memories of going to my grandparents' home in Queens growing up, and mm-hmm. we'd have these parties in the backyard, and the, sometimes they'd get a DJ, which was fun, yes. and they'd play all this Cuban music and Latin music and salsa and merengue, and I just loved it. But I, you know, I didn't know as much about the history of my family as I would have liked to. So I took this cultural anthropology seminar. I had no clue what cultural anthropology meant, <laughs> but I just loved the class, and I actually was able to focus um, some of my research that semester on Cuban music. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, this is cool. I get to combine my love of music with my family's history. Why don't I explore this a little bit? So I ultimately 
became a cultural anthropology major and really focused my research on Cuban music, mm -hmm. looking actually at Cuba and its music following the fall of the Soviet Union, and looked at what young people were creating and writing in the 90s during a very difficult mm. economic time there, but through uh, Cuban hip-hop and a style called timba, okay. uh, they were sort of using uh, music and metaphor as a way to speak to their daily realities. And along the way, I actually did a semester back in New York City, an arts and media program that Duke has. Okay. And I interned at Jazz at Lincoln Center mm -hmm. uh, at Columbus Circle, Wynton Marsalis' organization. And that was really the first time that I was on the inside of a major performing arts institution. Uh, I had this music background, but I really didn't know much about how arts organizations were run mm -hmm. and what that looked like on the inside. That experience just opened my eyes to something that I didn't know existed before, but totally matched who I was, okay. meaning a passion for music, a passion for presenting the arts, but also a knack for managing and producing and organizing projects and presenting artists, which in a way was something that we were doing since we were kids. Right. You know? Right. So I just realized, oh, this is actually a career path that you could do this. <laughs> so that sort of lit a fire under me, and I came back to, to Duke my junior year, and immediately started interning at Duke Performances, where okay. I work now, actually. And uh, Duke Performances is Duke's uh, professional performing arts presenter. Okay. So we present a whole season of music, dance, and theater in about a dozen different spaces on Duke's campus and in Durham. Okay. And anyway, I interned there, actually interned at Jess Lincoln Center again, and decided to go to grad school in arts administration. Mm -hmm. uh, actually came back to New York, to Columbia, to do that, uh, because I felt like, okay, I had these really great internship experiences, but I want to learn how to run an arts organization from top to bottom. Right. So grad school was a tremendous learning experience for me. I really felt like I wanted to come back to New York to do that, mm -hmm. um, that the city just felt like the perfect laboratory to learn from the best in the business and to be close to all, you know, all these incredible artists and arts organizations. It was sort of a crash course in every aspect of the field, from marketing to fundraising to arts law to accounting and all sorts of things that we think about in our work. Right. You know, types of organizations, nonprofit, for-profit, uh, the role of presenters. Uh, uh, I took a class from a Broadway publicist. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, I interned at Alvin Ailey mm -hmm. uh, during grad oh, school. Yeah. I don't have a dance background, but I, <laughs> I wanted to learn more about Absolutely. dance. Absolutely. And uh, that was tremendous. And uh, anyway, I think the formative moment for me that really changed my life during grad school was that I went to a concert at Symphony Space on the Upper West Side. And mm -hmm. my brother, because it all comes back to family, <laughs> my brother was working at the time at Symphony Space. Okay. And he got me a ticket to this show by a Latin jazz big band called the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, the music director and band leader is a musician named Arturo O'Farrell, mm -hmm. who's Cuban-American. Uh, his father was the legendary Cuban composer Chico O'Farrell, mm -hmm. who worked with all the greats uh, in jazz and Latin music. They had actually been founded at Jazz and Lincoln Center as the second resident big band next to Wynton Marsalis' orchestra, wow, but focused okay. on Latin music, Latin jazz. Right. And they actually were there when I interned, uh, but they, they left to start their own nonprofit to do okay. more performing and recording and education work. And they moved to Symphony Space. That was their new performance home. Okay. So my brother got me a ticket, 
and I go to the show, and I filled out one of those surveys in the program that nobody ever fills out. I actually filled it out, and then I flipped it over, and I wrote Arturo a note. I said, hi, I'm Eric. I'm half Cuban. I'm a musician. I'm a big fan of yours and the orchestras. I'm in grad school now studying arts management. I know you have a new nonprofit. If you need any help, let me know. That's fantastic. So I didn't hear from him for 10 months. Oh, <laughs> Like, this is why nobody fills out those surveys. Right? Yeah. But I, I got an, uh, an email from Arturo's wife, mm-hmm. and they had found my note in their house, I think literally <laughs> on their kitchen table. Spring cleaning. That's right. That's right. And they said, oh my God, Eric, we just found your note. Are you still interested in helping us? We'd love to meet with you. And I actually had just finished my internship at Alvin Ailey. I was about to start my master's thesis and felt like, I don't know if I have time but I thought, are you crazy? This is your passion. You love this music. Right. So I went to their home and we met and I realized very quickly that uh, we had a lot of work to do together. And there was no staff. There was a small board. And I came on board as Arturo's assistant director, basically his intern for mm-hmm. that year, my second year of grad school. And slowly but surely just helped them bit by bit, writing grants, helping them produce their concerts, raising money. I went to Cuba for the first time with him. I actually visited the house where my mom lived as a child outside of Havana. So really heavy emotional stuff. Definitely. And it felt wonderful to work with an ensemble that, that I loved that was sort of tied to my family's history and the music that I loved. I ended up doing one more year of school up at Harvard. I studied arts and education because I was interested in running arts organizations, but that had a strong educational focus. Mm -hmm. And I was coming to the table more as an arts administrator, but wanting to sort of have a crash course on the education side Mm -hmm. and want to learn about uh, the arts in higher education, which was an interest of mine, in curriculum development and community arts education, arts policy, things like that. That's really what I focused my year up in Cambridge on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but halfway through that year, I wrote Arturo a note, and I said, you know, you really need a full-time staff member, someone with a steady hand on the wheel <laughs> every day, uh, and I want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. And looking back, this was ridiculous of me because I was 23, 24 Barely, mm-hmm. and was basically asking to run an arts organization in New York City, right. where I had training and internships, but right. no formal professional experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, to his credit, he said, "You know, you're right. Let me take it back to the board and let's see what we can do." Okay. So the months that followed, they applied for some grants, they raised some money from from the board, and they actually were able to cobble together a starting salary for me. Okay. So the summer after I graduated. Moved back to New York, August of 2010, started as the executive director of the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance. That's awesome. Yeah, sort of my best education in that it threw me into the deep end of the pool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's the beauty of being that young. I mean, I, I did similar things in terms of just like going after what you wanted, even though you're just like, who, like you look back, you're like, who was I to think? Like, <laughs> you know, I think we doubt ourselves more as we get older, but, you know, I think it's interesting this balance of, you know, chasing this education to learn as much as you can learn. And what I love about it, and I I experienced something similar in terms of you don't even think that a career in this is possible until you start taking a class that opens, you know, your eyes to that. 
but also just that blind passion where it's just like, you know, if you knew too much, you might not <laughs> actually make that decision, but you're like, sure. no, this is what I want. I'm just going to ask for it. Like, you know, why not? Yes. So it's like a, a nice balance of uh, learning, but also just doing, like just acting on, on what you want. I that's think right. That's awesome. That's right. Yeah. It's sort of funny to think back thinking, what was, what was I thinking? <laughs> Uh, and then people often ask me now, so, so what was it like running that organization? Didn't you feel overwhelmed? Mm-hmm. And I think I, I was so scared, but I, I don't quite remember being scared. Because like, you don't know anything different, I feel yeah. like. Like, what's the alternative? Not having a job. Exactly. And that's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like, certainly being in your right. early to mid-20s in New York, uh, you need to pay the bills. Right. So... I remember just getting out of bed every day and going to work and, you know, working in a tiny office mm-hmm. and just each day somehow right. trying to push it forward. And, right. and some days were better than others. Some mm-hmm. days we had these huge wins and other days it was a lot tougher. But I felt fortunate in that I w- had the trust of this organization and Arturo and the board. And, you know, I was a staff of one for a year and recruited an army of interns to help me. Right. And then our second year, we raised enough money to hire a second staff person and just slowly but surely built it. But the orchestra already had this pedigree. They were founded at Jazz and Lincoln Center. They had won a Grammy. I was working with some of the best Latin jazz musicians in the world. Mm-hmm. And we were just sort of doing the work to help build this home for this orchestra and the work that it was doing, the, the performing it was doing, the commissioning of new music, uh, recording projects, touring nationally and internationally, and then also teaching in the schools in New York City mm-hmm. where members of the orchestra and other teaching artists were going into uh, low-income neighborhoods and teaching not just Latin jazz, but music mm-hmm. to young people, really kids who had never held an instrument in their hands before. We were fortunate to grow up in a community that had a really strong music mm-hmm. program, but I think... Absolutely. Sadly, it's not the norm anymore yeah. uh, that music education has been cut uh, all across the country. Yeah. And uh, we just forget that kids don't have that same experience, mm-hmm. which ultimately I think is, is problematic. If we think about the future of music, right. how are we developing audiences and listeners mm-hmm. and people who love it and who will support artists in the future? Right. And, and the fact of, you know, all the research that goes to show how music unlocks your ability to take better tests, write better essays, to, you know, learn, memorize things more easily. You know, it helps especially kids who learn differently mm-hmm. than others um, to really excel at other subjects in their life. So it it's sad to see, you know that get cut mm-hmm. <laughs> so sure. so quickly uh, you know the first thing on the chopping block it seems when you mentioned you know you, you're like the one-man show and you said for about a year kind mm-hmm. of doing that on your own I know a lot of our listeners feel that way um when they're trying to run their you know projects how where where were you at the point like what was the point where you were like okay I need more team members and and where do you begin in terms of like who you bring on first. Like, how do you prioritize mm-hmm. what needs? Because, like, I, I'm sure you yeah. felt like everything needs a second. <laughs> yes, for third sure. Hand. Yeah. Correct. So, I'm the type of person where if I have a big project in front of me, I really need to break it down mm-hmm. into small pieces. And I love spreadsheets. Yes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there do too. <laughs> Um, but what I did was I actually sort of, in a document, just sort of 
broke down all the different aspects of the organization. Mm-hmm. And if I was thinking about this organization as if it were a large organization, mm-hmm. what would be the different departments and different functions? Nice. Um, and then within that sort of broke down the priorities and projects that needed to happen. Wow. As you could imagine, it's an infinite number right. of priorities. Um, <laughs> right. But when I was thinking about, okay, what sort of support and team do I need? It first, you know, I first started with the people we had. Mm-hmm. So how can we get some of our board members to roll up their sleeves to help us out, which is common with smaller nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what sort of work can I call on Arturo to do with me? How can I find some interns locally who could, who could help out? Mm-hmm. Uh, Arturo's sons are both musicians and they were uh, in school at the time. They knew other musicians. Fortunately, we sort of had a steady pipeline of young okay. people to help <laughs> us. Uh, but we also had a bunch of consultants okay. and really a whole team of people, including a booking agent, a publicist, a marketing consultant, mm-hmm. where we couldn't bring them on staff full time, but we could pay them retainer or on a project basis and they could help us with each of our projects. Got it. So it was sort of like a mini constellation of people that we would pull in as needed mm-hmm. or that were working with us on an ongoing basis. We were just trying to break down each of the needs that we had. Mm-hmm. And as we raised more money, we were able to bring in more people and ultimately enough money to bring in a second full-time staff member who helped me with fundraising and with publicity. It took time. Yeah. And the organization now, I, I believe, has probably about eight or so staff members. Nice. So in the... Seven years after I left, uh, six plus years, yeah, you know, it continued to grow, which yeah. which feels great yeah. uh, that it, it continued on that trajectory. Yeah. Um, but I did that for for a couple of years, and then I got a call out of the blue from my old mentor from Duke, who was running Duke Performances, mm-hmm. and two people were leaving the office. One was going to grad school, and one was moving out of state for a new job. Mm-hmm. And he said, Eric, I'm throwing a Hail Mary here, but would you consider coming back to Duke and working for Duke Performances? And I never had thought about it. We had stayed in touch and were good friends, but certainly hadn't thought about going back to your alma mater that soon. But I thought, well, this is a tremendous opportunity to get an invite from your mentor. It's hard to say no. Mm -hmm. And also the arts at Duke and Durham as a city, they were just growing exponentially. Uh, Durham is sort of a mid-sized southern city that produced the majority of the country's cigarettes back at the turn of the 20th century. And then uh, the tobacco industry left town and left all these old uh, warehouses, Mm -hmm. these beautiful warehouses that have since been turned into uh, apartments and office buildings and restaurants and venues. Those must be gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a city that is definitely going through a renaissance over the last 15 years, say. Okay. Um, and that felt exciting to go to a place where I could, you know, contribute to that growth. You know, it was bittersweet because mm-hmm. I was doing all this work with the Afro Latin Jazz Alliance, and also I was had begun producing records. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, well, this was a an opportunity that I wanted to pursue. But I loved producing these records and working with the Afro Latin Jazz Orchestra and maintain that relationship with Arturo even after I moved down there. Okay. So that was another part of my work. There were sort of pieces of myself started right. to emerge. The the arts admin, arts presenting side of the work, uh, the music producing part of the work, and then ultimately this arts education teaching element, which, which was a later addition. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I teach a class at Duke, an 
introduction to performing arts management and entrepreneurship class for undergrads. Mm -hmm. I've always had these different sides to myself and right. have been fortunate to pursue each of those paths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be able to find an outlet for that. I think that's great. I mean, you, you know, you thought you might pursue journalism and then now here you are in the Latin Grammy world. I don't know, did you feel differently after that or is it just part of the job? I mean, if you didn't grow up like wishing and hoping for Grammys growing, you know, like what is that kind of experience like um, in terms of somebody that maybe didn't grow up with that dream of like being on, you know, at the Grammys or mm -hmm. to win a Grammy, but now your work has led you there and, and it's such an uh, acknowledgement of your work and the work that you do and the people you work with. So like, what was that like when it first happened? Mm -hmm. Well, I must say I, I definitely fall into the camp of people who didn't dream of that yeah. growing up as a kid. I think just naturally because I was fortunate to be working with these world-class artists mm -hmm. who were really and are really some of the best musicians here in New York, here in the world, right. playing this music. Right. That it sort of felt like, oh, this is a part of our reality. Mm -hmm. um, and they had won a Grammy before I started working with them. Actually, it was the year that I interned with them. Okay. And at that time, Arturo knew of my background as a musician, he knew of my background working in studios, and he invited me to produce uh, a small group record of his, a sextet record. Mm -hmm. And I really had no clue what producing meant, uh, but he asked me to sit in the booth with the engineer and to take notes and mm -hmm. to keep track of our takes and to listen. Mm -hmm. And that was my introduction to producing. <laughs> uh, I remember when I worked at that studio in high school in Manhattan, there was a producer that came in and he sort of stood behind the board and he was yelling out to the musicians in the room instructions right and i thought who is this strange man and what is why is he yelling at the musicians right but slowly but surely just started learning more about producing which of course means many different things in different contexts in music right. Right. Uh, in hip-hop the producers the beat maker right in other settings, the producer can be the the engineer mm -hmm. or the composer or the arranger. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, while I have studied and have been around engineering, I'm not an engineer. Mm -hmm. While I have studied composition and theory, that's not my main pursuit. Mm -hmm. um, but all these things sort of gave me a sensitivity to and knowledge of these things. Right. And just having a background as a musician, but also as, frankly, Someone who makes a living organizing things right. and keeping yeah. artists stay, uh, right. helping them stay organized. What I do really is from conception of an artistic idea for a project mm -hmm. from the beginning to, I'm not sure an album ever ends, but <laughs> right. to, to its release and <laughs> right. beyond mm -hmm. that I'm sort of the lead and, a, and project manager right. on that record. So, right. you know, choosing the songs and the repertoire uh, with the artists, I've been really fortunate to work with really wonderful composers, mm -hmm. um, ultimately raising the money, uh, if we are releasing it through a label, finding the label and negotiating that, uh, hiring our engineers and our photographers and videographers for the studio, actually being present for the recording sessions and sitting, just as I did back in the day, sitting next to the engineer, taking those notes, making right. sure we were on schedule, on mm -hmm. budget, getting the band fed. Right. Um, and then once we emerge from those sessions with, with our mixes, um, working with the engineer and the artist to mix and master the record, and then ultimately work on the uh, marketing publicity 
promotion, right. distribution plan uh, through release and beyond. Right. And uh, the Grammy and Latin Grammy stuff is a part of the work too in that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you put these labors of love out into the world and right. you hope that your peers listen to it and, mm-hmm. and acknowledge it. And I think the first time that, that I was nominated with the band, it was just sort of uh, a really lovely thing. Mm-hmm. There was a moment of shock in that, yes, in our culture, people know what a Grammy is. Right. Even if they have no clue what type of music I work on, <laughs> they, they like, understand. Okay, okay right. I understand what right. that is. So that was really nice. And uh, we actually didn't win that first time. That was the year that they actually eliminated the Latin jazz category from oh, the Grammys. Okay. And this was mm-hmm. back in 2011, where they had cut not just the Latin jazz category, but basically about 30 categories that right. that included mm-hmm. mostly non-commercial music right. and music representing mi- minority right, groups. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, we got to get, you know, <laughs> what's going to make it to air, you know. Exactly. Make it more attractive to the layman's. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there used to, there was a Latin jazz category. Right. They got rid of it. They put us into the best large jazz ensemble category where we're competing with all big bands all Jeez, over the world. Yeah. And it was still an, an honor to yeah. be nominated, especially during that year. We didn't win. They ultimately reinstated the Latin jazz category. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later for another project I did, The Offense of the Drum with Arturo and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, we won. And uh, it was a surreal, you know, a yeah. surreal moment more than anything, I, I sort of joke with people that Grammys, they just collect dust. Right. You know, they, they, they sit at home and that's all they do. But, you know, sort of more seriously, they are an acknowledgement, as you said, right. of the work by your peers, right. which means a lot. And actually, they, they serve a purpose in that they lead to more opportunities. Sure, And gigs course. and projects. Right. So right. that has always been a really lovely part of that acknowledgement that, you know, really the goal is to, to help bring the artists more opportunities. Exactly. And that's what it's done. It's a door opener. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I agree. I think also a lot of the artists I come across, you know, they just want to feel legitimized by something, you mm-hmm. know, and if it's a Grammy or signing to a label or getting on a certain tour so that when people, mainly their family, are like, well, what are you even doing with this? They can point to that and say, you know, this is what that is. But, you know, I think it's interesting... Obviously, that's the thing that people go to, like, oh, you won a Grammy, but you've accomplished so much (laughs) in such a short amount of time in all different avenues of the arts in general. You know, that's just a piece of what you do, and I think it's important to remind artists that there's so much to be learned and there's so much to accomplish that it doesn't have to be, you know, the big shiny thing, whether it's a Grammy or whether it's something else, it's still... There's more underneath that that doesn't get talked about or maybe doesn't shine a light on it, but to work at some of the art centers you've worked at and the musicians that you get to work with. I mean, I'm sure even if you didn't win a Grammy, it doesn't take away from the fact of, wow, you get to wake up and and do this and work with these people, you know? I think that's important for, for people to keep in mind. And I wanted to touch upon another area of work that you've done in terms of your research into the arts and how they play a role in education. I know we talked about that briefly uh, earlier. Um, I know one of your essays was published in the 20 Under 40. Tell me a little bit about what research went into writing that essay. Obviously, we said, you know, you come from a musically inclined family. We had a very healthy arts department growing up in our town. But, you know, beyond genes and, and beyond the, the history of music that you come from, what is it about music education? Where does that passion come from 
to spur on this research and delving into this type of area. Mm-hmm. So I think the certainly the interest started when we were kids, mm-hmm. but then it carried into college where I was at Duke um, for school. Duke actually published a strategic plan my okay. junior year where the arts were listed as one of a handful of priority areas. And this was really exciting for me as an art student, as someone involved in the arts on campus. And I thought, huh, that's, that's interesting that the university is making this a strategic priority. Mm-hmm. So that got me thinking about, well, is that just happening here or is that happening across the country? And it turned out that uh, it was happening all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of reasons for it. But at that time, sort of in the 2000s, do we call it the aughts? The, the aughts, yeah. sure. Is what the kids call it these <laughs> that's days. That's right. Uh, there was what was called the creative campus movement. Okay. And universities were recognizing the role of the arts in bringing all these different benefits to their students and their communities. Mm-hmm. So by offering uh, arts classes and majors and recruiting arts faculty and supporting arts presenters on campus who were bringing professional artists from all over the world, there were all these benefits that they were finding. They were seeing that, you know, sort of the research we know about music education, arts education, that it helps students in their their emotional and intellectual mm-hmm. development, helps them to develop problem-solving skills and sensitivity to really complex issues of the world. Mm-hmm. Certainly for universities that had, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. culture, meaning an active arts scene, it was helping them recruit students Mm -hmm. and faculty who would move to those places to to be there and study there and work there. This was around the time when universities were putting a a premium on this idea of interdisciplinary education, Mm -hmm. its benefits to students, and the arts were identified as a means towards interdisciplinary collaboration across campuses. So you had all these these benefits at the time, and there were these funders, the Doris Duke Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, who actually convened with university presidents and uh, presidents of performing arts centers and people thinking about these issues, the arts and higher ed, Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about the intersection of the two, uh, how they could support one another. The arts have sort of been at universities forever in all sorts of ways. So it's not to suggest that this is the first time that folks are recognizing that <laughs> right, that relationship. Right. But I think that there was sort of an understanding at the time that uh, the arts were a powerful tool for colleges and communities, and not just sort of elite private institutions, but mm-hmm. state schools and community colleges and everyone right. in between. And they didn't always require a ton of resources, you know, to, to give students those opportunities. I became interested in this, and actually there was a grant program funded by... Association of Performing Arts Professionals and some of these foundations. So I interviewed these leaders of uh, these university uh, presenting or arts presenting organizations who were experimenting with these projects that were grant funded and taking artists and having them collaborate across their campuses and explore different ideas and questions and themes and really using the arts as as a means towards. Uh, sort of what I was mentioning earlier about this cross-campus interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. conversation. That was a really fun experience and that I got to meet 
presenters from around the country, and ultimately it became my work. Okay. When I returned to Duke Performances, Duke Performances is one of those presenting organizations where we are bringing artists to to our campus and our community to not only present them on our stages, but also to have them in conversation with our students, with our faculty, our community, where they're talking about their experiences as artists, their process, yeah. the context out of which their work comes. And I personally believe, and I know you feel strongly about this too, <laughs> that artists can be an incredible bridge in communities, that they can help us talk about hard issues, mm-hmm. that they can certainly provide beauty um, through their work that just enlivens uh, our experiences. So um, that's a big part of what I do at Duke in coordinating these these artist residencies where the artist is not just, as I said, uh, performing, but they're talking with folks and working in all sorts of ways on campus and in town. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, the, the education and the research that I was doing it's cool that it sort of came full circle and I was, I'm able to do that every day now. Right. In addition to the other side hustles that I yeah. have. <laughs> Why not add them to the plate? Why right. not? What would you say is most important for young musicians to keep in mind who may have had their hearts set on winning the Grammys or the getting signed or getting discovered, reaching any of those uh, loftier achievements? What's something that served you well? I mean, is it a particular mindset? Is it a skill set? Or, you know... W- certain resources that you've um, had available to you? Like, what would you say, whether they're a musician or somebody like yourself that does more of the background work, what, what's your advice when all they kind of see is, like, the top part and they haven't done the middle part yet? Mm-hmm. I would say it's sort of what I did or what I do when I'm faced with any large mm-hmm. project. Spreadsheets. Spreadsheets, yeah. yeah. I mean, really. No, I love it, though. You could I, that's what I do. Write it down, write your goals yeah. down, and yeah. maybe you won't look at those goals every day, but... You can revisit them. Mm-hmm. I think it sort of sounds corny, but whether you write it down or not, having some sort of guiding mission statement for your work mm-hmm. um, can be really powerful. Because a dream, as as folks say, a, you know, <laughs> a, a, a dream is not necessarily an actionable thing. Right. But if you have a goal, and I may be getting the expression wrong, but mm-hmm. if you have a goal, you can actually break it down into discrete steps. Right. And... And once you know what steps you need to take or that seem like the right steps, you can put in the work. Right. So my advice is always, you know, try to identify what that big goal of yours is and then do as much research as you can about how other people have gotten there. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in models. Okay. Uh, And actually this, this class that I teach at Duke, most weeks we have a guest speaker. And the reason for that is... Uh, because I selfishly want to learn from all these great people working in the arts <laughs> and like, music. Come to my school. That's right. Uh, <laughs> but really, I remember in my own education that the moments when I felt like, oh, I can do this, was when I had examples, real-life examples right. of people doing the work. And those folks would tell me things like, you need to become an expert in your music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to know all the leaders in your field who are doing the work study up on them, read about them. If they live near you, invite them out to coffee and, right. and pick up the tab for the coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they're making a lot more money right. than you are, <laughs> exactly. it's the gesture that counts. Yeah. And yeah, you just want to, ho- hopefully it's not a burden because you love this thing. So you love reading about it and, mm-hmm. and Googling it. Right. Uh, but then you start to A, build relationships with right. people. And as we know in the arts and music, it's all about 
relationships, Mm -hmm. not in a bad way, but just because you can access ideas and resources and support from other folks in that fashion. And it's, Mm -hmm. of course, a very collaborative field. Mm -hmm. I'd say also just showing up every day and moving the needle a little bit. And as a musician, if that means, if your goal is to release your own album with your own songs, every day you're in the practice room, you're working on your instruments, on your craft, on your singing, whatever it is. And it probably isn't going to be that great at the beginning, but if you keep working on it and training and getting constructive feedback from folks, you will get better. Yeah. I mean, in jazz, there, there's a term called shedding, mm-hmm. and uh, musicians talk constantly about, man, i got to get back to the shed. <laughs> uh, and that, for them, means I need to go practice. Right. And um, shedding and practicing is a powerful reminder to stay humble. The Grammys and these other glitzy things, signing a major record deal, are exciting. Right. But they shouldn't be the goal. Right. They are uh, a nice end product, a nice byproduct of right. the work. Mm-hmm. But if you stay humble, and I think humility is really important in this work because it helps you stay grounded and helps you stay close to the thing that's important, which is your craft. Right. And whether you're on the artistic side or the administrative side, behind the scenes, that there's so much to learn and to get better. I feel like, personally... I'm just getting started. Like, I'm just learning about the things that that excite me and Mm -hmm. that I want to get better at, and I feel like there's so much more that I want to do. Right. And my mantra has always just been work hard and be open to opportunities, too, Mm -hmm. because you'll never know what the universe will throw at you. Right. I never could have expected from writing, scrawling a note at at a show that that would change my whole life and that would lead me to work with Arturo, that would lead me to run a nonprofit, ultimately lead me to returning to my alma mater, to work at Duke, and then ultimately to work with an artist like Daphne Prieto, who I'm working with now. We just released a a big band record last April, and he, for me, was an idol growing up, being a drummer. Mm -hmm. He's Cuban-born, a MacArthur-winning, Genius Grant winner, an incredible composer, drummer, band leader, and educator. And sort of the same risk that I took in writing to Arturo, many years after that, reached out to Daphne saying, I really admire your work. I'd love to do something with you. Right. And to his credit, he, <laughs> he wrote me back and said, let's talk. And when I asked him, well, what is your dream project? He took me seriously and said, I've always wanted to do a Big Ben record. But he knew that I had worked on all those Big Ben records and knew how to go about doing that. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we gave ourselves a long ramp, and we raised the money, and we ultimately, it was my first experience self-releasing a project on his label. That's awesome. So all the things that previously had been delegated to the, the record label, Daphne said, you know, let's do it ourselves. Right. We had shopped it a little bit, but sort of felt like there wasn't enough enthusiasm to give it what we wanted right. um, to give it. So these projects become your baby. You yeah. want to give them the best. <laughs> right. And through that experience, I learned about all aspects. I knew about these, these things, but had never done them myself. Right. Everything from, from the album art to the, distrib- the distribution, online, physical, all these things that uh, we know are part of the work, but actually uh, was able to, to, to do it myself. So uh, with Daphnis, and uh, it was just a great, a great experience and very sort of um empowering yeah at the same time sounds like it that's that's i i 
want to like interview like all day long about all the different projects you <laughs> it's just like fascinating to me all the different avenues that you've taken um your career but um we do have to wrap it up with my my four rapid fire questions but right. first you know i think there's so much to be learned so far just in terms of perseverance and networking you know definitely i mean someone from your educational background i mean you certainly have the um capabilities of doing stuff but like you said even at the young you know early 20s there were other people that might have had more experience than you but you asked you know there's so much to be said for asking and just going after things and networking and paying for that cup of coffee and you know making those relationships happen because ultimately it comes down to people want to work with who they enjoy working with show people that you're a kind individual that you're passionate about the work that you do that's like half the battle i feel Mm -hmm. um Yes. I think that's, yes. That's Tr- awesome. Trust is a big thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Being comfortable with your collaborators. And, right. Uh, yes. You, you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. I know from my friends who are producers. They that's one of their top things. They have to make the person you know feel able to trust them mm-hmm. uh, in a role like yours. So here come the questions. Uh, what <laughs> What first comes to mind? If you could choose one superpower, what would it be? Maybe flying because I'm terrified of heights. <laughs> And I would love to overcome that. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And if time travel was possible, what's one lesson you'd like to go back and tell yourself? Don't be scared. Hmm. Just, just go for it. You know, just go for it. Just know it will all work out. <laughs> Absolutely. Invite three musicians, living or dead. This will be hard because I know you know a lot of them. Three musicians to your house for dinner. Oh, man. I've always loved this question. I'm not sure I've ever answered it before, though. I think um, Charlie Parker, Mm. the great jazz saxophonist, one of the first CDs I ever got. I started playing saxophone at Floor Park Bellrose School. (laughs) My dad gave me the essential Charlie Parker. And it was probably pretty weird at the time, but I was seven, eight years old listening to Charlie Parker, (laughs) Bebop. Uh, So he would be the first... That's awesome. I think the second would probably be the the great Cuban singer Celia Cruz, mm-hmm. one of the great voices of Cuba of all time. And then third would probably be John Lennon, mm. uh, because the Beatles were one of my first loves, thanks to my family and just an you know a genius, incredible yeah. uh, musician. I. I'd be fascinated by what we would all talk about. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's a very eclectic group, oh, but I love it. Oh. I love it. That would be... It reveals a lot about my musical interests and tastes, <laughs> wide, wide-ranging. I love it. So, um, this podcast is all about taking action, and so usually I give a downloadable action sheet, but since we don't have those with the interviews, what's one action you'd like our listeners to take? What's something you'd like them to go do this week? I'm going to give everyone the homework of writing down your professional mission statement. Nice. And try to keep it to no more than three sentences. Okay. And in it, I want you all to identify your professional goal or goals, the things that are unique to you and what you bring to the table, and how you aim to get there. I love it. That's and awesome. I know three sentences is sounds like crazy <laughs> to accomplish all of that, but maybe tackle some of Keep it. it you know. Simple. Keep it simple. Yeah. And write it down somewhere, either in a journal or in a Google Doc, somewhere where you can find it. 
so you can refer to it every so often. Nice. And um, I think that on those tough days, just having a record of that somewhere will will keep you grounded and will remind you of your unique skills and what, what is unique about what you bring to the table that no one else in the world and in history could ever do like you do. And uh, it also reminds you of, of where you want to go. Right. So, and maybe, there's a lot of distracting stuff out there that kind of takes us off course. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. So I know it sounds corny, but a personal professional mission statement and um, give it a shot. I worked on one years ago and I look back at it every so often and, and it's fun to think about how certain parts of it have worked mm-hmm. out and certain parts of it I'm still working on. Right. So <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's my homework to everyone. I like it. Well, guys, if you want to go do that, I highly suggest you do those steps that Eric has just written out, uh, listed out for us, are written out in the show notes. So go check the show notes page. And yeah, I highly encourage that. Thank you so much for taking time to share your journey with us. It's such an interesting one. So Thanks we don't so we don't get your me. stories a lot. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I mean, here. it's a, a huge honor to be here. And as an avid listener, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, a thrill a thrill to chat and catch up with an old friend. Yeah. Thanks for this high school reunion. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks. Man, I know that was a long one, and there's still so many questions I wanted to ask him. Since our conversation, which was recorded back during the holidays, Eric has gone on to win his third Grammy, not counting his two Latin Grammy wins, for his work with Daphnis Prieto. Just a few short weeks ago, he won as producer for Best Latin Jazz Album for Prieto's Back to the Sunset. We're so proud of him back in our little hometown, but aside from the accolades, what I'm most proud to know Eric for is his ability to go after what he wants. It's easy in this industry to start following other people's dreams or to stay in one area of the business because it feels too risky to pivot. I hope we all never lose that naivete we have in our youth to just go for it. And if you have lost it, take a moment today and tap back into it. Go write that mission statement Eric suggested and go after what it is you know you're capable of achieving. If you need those steps again that Eric laid out, you can find them in our show notes. Simply go to therockstaradvocate.com forward slash EP53 and they'll be there waiting for you along with links to Eric's work. In addition, if you're in a rut and not sure where you need to focus on first, try out my next steps quiz. I've been told it's pretty accurate. Answer a few questions, and not only will I let you know what the next steps to take will be, but I'll also provide you with a free download to help you get there. The link to the quiz is in the show notes. That's therockstaradvocate.com forward slash EP53. As always, I thank you for listening, and I'm here if you have any questions. Email me at any time, suz, S-U-Z, at therockstaradvocate.com. Until next time, Rockstar, have a wonderful week, and I hope to see you back here next week so we can get grounded to get rising. Take care.